as far as. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege to be able to gather together as family this evening. Thank you, Father, for truth that continues to set us free in the face of all kinds of adversity, Father. We know that by your grace and your love, we shall persevere. These are the promises, promises that you give us in light of this opposition, opposed to it, these antagonistic beings, Father, they are unrelenting. But by grace, we shall overcome. Thank you for being able to bring glory to you in times like this, times of trial and tribulation. May we all just settle in and see the big picture along the way and learn how to cancel out the white noise. For that's all it is, is none of these beings, none of these tests have any real power over us unless we afford them that power. So let us concentrate this evening. Uh, we ask for your Spirit's guidance, of course, and his help in concentrating while he's teaching us. We pray for those who were detained this evening for good reasons or otherwise, whatever is appropriate, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, when subjectivity becomes the culturally accepted norm, uh, this is a special message this evening. I do want to dovetail into it, though, by doing a quick review of Tuesday evening's lesson, which will end with this nice transition into this concept of when subjectivity becomes the culturally accepted norm. Go to Matthew 19.25. This passage ought to be very uh, familiar to us. Uh, we should be pretty comfortable with it by now in terms of the context. What leads up to this dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. <clears throat> Matthew 19.25, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, God can save anyone. So while we've been focusing most of our attention on the second half of that last statement from Jesus, it's good and right to recognize that it was made as a statement in the context of contrast, in the context of a contrast, on the coattails of Jesus turning away the rich young ruler. So for the sake of closure on this passage, at least for now, up here on the board we have, with people, this is impossible. The point Jesus is plainly stating is that human abilities, including human rationale, are incapable of arriving at a satisfactory conclusion about God's salvation. This is what it means with people, this is impossible. The point Jesus is plainly stating is that human abilities, including human rationale, 
are incapable of arriving at a satisfactory conclusion about God's salvation. That's why the rich young ruler went away. Because he wasn't interested in the things of God, he was inter interested in adding unto himself. And then Jesus says, of course, this most familiar phrase, but with God all things are possible. The contrast is important here, and that's how we're closing this out. I want you to see the contrast between these two statements. So the contrast is important here. Jesus used specific language to impress upon his disciples that only God saves. Only God saves. You remember the rich young ruler was, even though he was asking the Lord, he was trying to save himself. What do I do so that I can get eternal life, in other words? Salvation is a supernatural gift, not a human endeavor. Theology proper is when God wills, it simply is. When God wills, it simply is. Now, as the Spirit was speaking from the pulpit on Tuesday, particularly about John chapter 10, which we might dub the shepherd verses, I was thinking about Scott's turkey analogy, which is pretty funny, actually, <clears throat> and how the, this so-called papa turkey was disciplining the laggards in the group. You know, the group had moved away to sort of, let's say, greener pastures. But there were a couple of laggards, and the way Scott saw it is the leader was sort of pecking at them, saying, keep up. But what you don't see is the lead turkey running around through the woods, pecking at any and every wild turkey. So like our great shepherd who tends to his own sheep, and uses under-shepherds to do so even now. His discipline was focused on a certain way on his own flock. Again, like our great shepherd who tends to his own sheep, his discipline was focused a certain way on his own flock. Here's the point that occurred to me when I was listening to the message on discipline. A good father disciplines his own. That's Proverbs 13, 24, of course, Hebrews 12, 6. This is not necessarily the same discipline that he might use with one that is not his child. I've been giving this, actually DJ and I had this talk this past week, how God disciplines his own differently than he disciplines those that are unsaved still. The way he disciplines his children is actually different than the way he might discipline an unbeliever. So a good father disciplines his own. This is not necessarily the same discipline that he might use with one that is not his child. We aren't called sons after all, or adopted even, until we're adopted at salvation. That's Galatians 3.26. Go to Proverbs 13.24. Proverbs 13.24. I just want you to see these verses in the eye gate. A good father disciplines his own. Proverbs 13.24. reads, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him, how? Diligently. Disciplines him diligently. How about Hebrews 12, 6? Go there. Hebrews 12, 6. So it's true. This is what a good father does. And of course, a father has his own children. 
So the analog, of course, is that a saved individual is a child of God. Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Again, that helps us with the concept that a good father disciplines his own. How about we aren't called sons until we're adopted at salvation? Go to Galatians 3.26. Galatians 3.26. Just to show you in Scripture. <clears throat> Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you've become, that's how you were adopted, that's how you became a child of God, a son of God. It's through faith in Christ Jesus. So that helps us with that point. Tuesday's lesson closed with, Let all that you do be done in love, which includes said discipline. So we can think about our Father in heaven. Even though he disciplines us, we should never forget that even said discipline is out of love, as is any good, solid discipline. Up here on the board, and you all, if you've been in this ministry any, for any period of time, understand that there's been a lot of discipline that comes from this pulpit. Uh, and it's all good because it's all out of love. One of the shepherd's key roles in leading his sheep is to remind the sheep of their need to read their Bibles daily. If they refuse, he must take out the rod, which is the word, and whack them. This is what we might call tough love. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 14. Again, one of my key roles in leading you is to remind you to read your Bibles daily. Not only that, there's lots of things I have to tell you to do daily. Lots of things I have to ask you to consider about yourselves that sting, that hurt, that aren't easy. And if you refuse even the basics to show up to class, why do you think I spent a little extra time sharing with you my dismay with such a small group? Honestly, why is that? That's grotesque to me. Given the grace, and I'm not talking about people with legitimate problems. Given the grace that comes from this ministry, people that refuse that grace ought to be whacked upside the head. I don't mean physically, I mean with the word. People that don't read their Bibles daily ought to be whacked upside the head. And I'm not talking about people that aren't convicted yet, who are new, who are still learning. I'm, not talking, I'm talking about people that know better and don't read their Bibles every day, and don't come to class when they're literally capable of coming to class. They ought to be whacked upside the head. And so the God, or excuse me, Jesus, our great shepherd, ordains under shepherds like me to do that very thing. And it's not out of anything but love. Is it tough? Okay, it's tough, whatever. So we call it tough love. But you know what? That's what I read when I read 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That doesn't mean, oh, come here and put your head on my breast and we'll just get all gushy. That's garbage. You might as well, you might as well get Fabio up here. 
or, 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 I don't know, Frosty the Snowman or some other doughy-type creature that doesn't love you. That's not true love. That's not true love at all. That's garbage. That's what the world peddles as love, and it's a counterfeit. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. If that requires discipline, then so be it. Then it's discipline. That's in order. As we've noted in Scripture, a father that loves his children takes the time and energy to discipline them. If he doesn't, what does that say about the father's love? If the Bible says a father that loves his children disciplines them, if the father doesn't, what does that say about the father's love then? You conclude that. Stepping back now and seeing the big picture, who's the great shepherd? Jesus Christ is, of course. What's his other name? The one given in John 1? The Word, the Logos. Therefore, the strength of our great shepherd's discipline is founded in the Word. Our great shepherd is the Word. The great strength of discipline comes from the Word. That's why we call the rod, the staff, the rod. It is the Word. And the Word stings, and it stings on purpose. And it's given to you out of grace, which is always motivated by what? Love. So in light of this past week's lessons, what might you think that Satan and his demons might try to do in order to weaken the great shepherd's presence in this world? Take the word, his word, out of the equation, especially the so-called red letters. This is what we've been talking about this past week. And hopefully you see how ingenious Satan is. Anyone who refuses to read Christ's own words as applicable to themselves has been duped. Anyone who refuses to read Christ's own words as applicable to themselves has been duped. As mentioned this past week, there are whole factions of so-called Christians that claim Jesus' words aren't for their church or the church. Yet, as it came out on Tuesday, here's the goofiest thing of all. Jesus Christ is the one who started the church. Who do you think he was preparing to go out and, and, and propagate the church? What do you think his words were used to do? By grace, they were what? Prepared. That's what he did. He started the church. You get it? Why in the world would we take out the founder's words? It'd be like having the, the mission statement of Microsoft from Bill Gates himself. Oh, we, no, we'll take that right out. What? But he's the founder. Yeah, we'll take that right out. Jesus is the one who started the church. How dare we take out his words? The last point I'd like to make on the topic of this past week's lessons is regarding repentance. And I need you to concentrate. I need you to concentrate. 
We've spent a fair amount of time using Scripture to prove that a person doesn't have to know of every sin in order to repent. That's an impossibility. We've been over it. But on the flip side, they must know of some sin. I mean, if you're going to conclude that you're a sinner, you must understand that there's some sin in your life, right? So let's just be really, really academic for a moment. Let me see if this helps. Go to James 2.10. James 2.10. I'm going to show you something very, very simple, and hopefully the, this baseline principle puts it to, to bed forever. We may not understand every sin. That may not be a requirement for repentance. But we, are, we have to understand at least one sin. We have to understand that sin exists in our lives. We have to understand that we've, we've been unrighteous at least once in our lives, right? Which is silly to say it that way, but I'm just trying to prove a point. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. If you stumble in one point, in other words, this is, a, this is almost like a, uh, an academic proposition because no one's ever done this except Jesus Christ, and he never stumbled. But, theoretically, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This means that a person who understands this understands that even one sin is too much for perfect righteousness to exist. So this is a long principle, and I'm sorry about the eye chart. Fueling repentance, technically speaking, in light of James 2.10, which is what we just read, repentance can be based on the knowledge of a single sin, and I'm just speaking academically, so don't get all doctrinal, although doctrine's here, of course. Technically speaking, repentance can be based on the knowledge of a single sin, because as soon as you sin once, you're unrighteous. Do you understand? You're guilty of everything. So even if you know one sin, you don't have to know them all, but you got to at least know one. This one sin is enough to convict a person about their unrighteousness before the holy God of the universe. The same one, by the way, that's convicting them in that moment, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they are now accountable to repentance, for to whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12 47 to 48. Again, the point on the board, technically speaking, there's really only one sin that needs to be known. You choose it. I, I don't want to get into theology. I'm just making a point. This one sin is enough to convict the person about their unrighteousness before the holy God of the universe. And if you've sinned one way, then you might as well say you sinned the whole way. That's what James 2.10 just taught us. Therefore, they are now accountable to repentance. For to whom much is given, much is required. If that's still a little theological or too theological for you at this juncture, let me try to explain it to you the way maybe I imagine Jesus might have. How about this up here in the board? Repentance requires conviction. Why don't we spank infants? I mean, some idiots do, and they ought to be shot, but why, do, why, do we, why, do, why don't we spank infants? I'm talking like a two-year-old. Because they don't know any better. That's why. They don't know any better. If a person's an infant in Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.1, let's say, God treats them the same way, even regarding the supernatural dynamic in repentance. He can't 
He can't justly ask you to repent from something you don't even know is a sin. Does that make sense? That's what he's been saying. Okay? Up here on the board. If God were to say, since you've not repented from spilling your milk, you get no more milk to this infant, how will that infant ever grow up to actually know the truth? To eventually repent from said sin? That would frustrate his own desires. That, guess what? All men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4. That sound like God to you? Nope. Nope. So, what the Spirit was saying to us this past week with the lessons on with God, all things are possible, was twofold. First, nobody's unsavable in God's eyes. That's an issue between an individual and God. But we don't get to say that someone's unsavable. That's a decision by God. So first, nobody's, quote, unsavable in God's eyes, regardless of the presence of sin in their lives, or even their living in it, in that moment. Second, God will never frustrate his own plans to save mankind. But Satan will. As we began class with this evening, our God is a loving God whose example includes so-called tough love as required. The word may not always be palatable to the arrogant, but that's not the point. We are to give it just the same, or live it just the same. And that doesn't mean that it's always gushy or under the premise the world holds up as love. Why does love always have to be this sort of romance novel type thing? And if it's not this sort of gushy mama bear type thing, um, something's wrong. If it's not all fluffy and cushy and comfy, then it mustn't be love. That's garbage. Loving discipline. Sometimes it's the staff. Sometimes it's the rod. Neither is any less loving than the other. For every circumstance requires a discernment of context in order for righteous judgment and loving discipline to be administered in a godly manner. That is what 1 Corinthians 16, 13 to 14 says. Stand up, be a man, stand firm, let everything you do be done in love. Everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sometimes you're guiding gently with a staff. Sometimes you're whacking with a rod. None is, none is less or more loving than the other. It's whatever's appropriate for the context of the situation. You see, today, and this is where we're ending up with tonight's message even, today everything's gushy. Nobody stands up for objective truth anymore. And if you do, somehow you're an animal. Somehow you're a hater. Somehow if you don't partake in this emotional basket case subjectivity that is America, somehow you're a hater. Somehow because you stand up for discipline, for truth, for the word of God, 
all of a sudden you're a hater. Let me give you the um, <clears throat> amplified classic on 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Be alert and on your guard. Stand firm in your faith. Your conviction respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, keeping the trust and holy fervor born of faith and a part of it. Act like men and be courageous. Grow in strength. Let everything you do be done in love, true love to God and man as inspired by God's love for us. Ah, there's the key. Inspired by whose love? God's love for us. And what does God do to those he loves? He disciplines them. So if our inspiration is God himself, the wellspring of love, and he disciplines his children, his own, what are we supposed to do? What's a shepherd supposed to do on behalf of the great shepherd? Discipline as necessary. What's a parent supposed to do? Discipline as necessary. You see, it's a lot harder to be a good parent and a good shepherd than it is to be a weak one, at least in the moment. It's a lot harder. Brian and I were just talking about that before class. And in this world, it's horrifically, increasingly difficult to be a good anything. Amen? It's, it's, it's almost impossible to be a good anything. Because nobody wants to stand up for objective truth. Everybody's a bunch of subjective pseudo-feminist pansies. And they call that love. And if you don't subscribe to that viewpoint, you're a hater. So this is a good point of transition to the topic of this evening's message. It's also appropriately placed because some of you, and I'm assuming many of those outside of this congregation, will continue to stumble at the cold, hard truth being taught from this pulpit. And I don't mean just this evening. I mean as of late. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the good news is that or is what I told our newest official member, uh, Sarah, recently. Here's the good news about this ministry. Each of you has to decide on a, on a most important decision. And I told her this last Sunday, before I said, you're, you know, you're welcome to be a member. I told her before even as well. First, is this pulpit teaching truth or lies? based on Holy Scripture. If you don't know because you refuse to read your own Bible, then shame on you. If you've begun reading your Bible and you're still confused about this or that, then give it the benefit of the doubt for now. Second, is the man leading this ministry a loving under-shepherd who lays down his life for your soul? If you don't know the answer to this because you refuse to listen to him, then shame on you. Again, this past week's lessons are a wonderful preparation for this evening's lesson, as you'll see shortly. So, with that said, I need you to take a big step back now. Like, take a really big step back. We're changing gears. Same content, different viewpoint. 
This evening, we're going to be contemplating what we might best call societal norms. Societal norms. Okay? And remember, we are studying why are the apostles so encouraging. So don't think that this is an American plague or something that's contemporary only. Societal norms have existed that have been antagonistic to the word for millennia. So it's just another day of the same thing. But we need to take Holy Scripture. If we're going to relate to it, we have to bridge the gap. And we have to understand that the same basic principles, as Solomon would say, nothing new under the sun, that existed here exist in our own lives, just differently. I would argue probably a little bit more, quote, creatively, in some ways more insidiously, just because of technology even, um, and the acceleration of our own society away from Christ. But nonetheless, the principles are the same. So we're still studying why the apostles are so encouraging. Because they had to deal with societal norms as well. So let me give you um, a dictionary definition for societal norms. Social norms or mores are the rules of behavior that are considered acceptable in a group or society. People who do not follow these norms may be shunned or suffer some kind of consequence. Excuse me. Norms change according to the environment or situation and may change or be modified over time. Now, there's red alerts all over that, but we'll get to that. So that's what societal norms are. And we're going to use this working definition throughout our lesson here. For the sake of the gospel, let us remember how extremely disruptive Jesus Christ and his gospel would have been to societal norms during his incarnation. Jesus Christ was extremely disruptive to societal norms during his incarnation. And suffice to say that he was murdered. He was murdered as a result of challenging the societal norms. Oh, and the vast majority of his apostles were also murdered, martyred, for the same reason. So we know from biblical history that people who function outside of societal norms suffer in ways ranging from, let's say, dismissive disagreement all the way to murder and everything in between. So it's fair to say that the severity of the backlash against a nonconformist is dependent on the context of the situation. What's at stake, etc. For example, you may side with the 29% of Americans who agree that vanilla is the best flavor of ice cream. You may. However, you may be among the 3.4% that agrees that cookies and creams is the best flavor. Are there going to be any impending death threats over such an innocuous subject? I hope not. However, however, what if you're among the 19% of Americans who believe that abortion 
should be illegal in all circumstances. Forget about all the iterations and all the legality. What if you're among the 19% of Americans that believe that abortions should be illegal under all circumstances? You might have a severe battle on your hands. Because now we're talking about life and death. And in some cases, this conflict has resulted in human death and murder. But the Spirit doesn't have me standing up here to debate this or that social norm specifically. What He wants me to do is teach you perspective on such things and how they even become issues in the first place. I mean, how does someone... How does there such a chasm between two individuals based on a societal norm where someone kills another person? I mean, how, how strong are these norms? What are these things where people actually go out and kill somebody? The stark contrast, of course, to all of this is heaven, where none of these societal norms will be an issue. We'll all be under one perfect set of them. We'll have a society, if you want to call it that. It will be a society. We'll socialize with each other. But it'll be perfect. And there won't be any weird, fluid societal norms that cause divisions or fra uh, fractions in heaven. So that's our opening. Um, that's our opening, so to speak. Let me begin this way. And this is the thought I had after listening to a biblically sound person debate with what are dubbed nowadays, at least in America, social justice warriors. Social justice warriors, SJWs for short. You can call them anything you'd like. I have my own personal favorites, but I'm going to refrain. I'll start this way. <clears throat> Societal norms, just because a certain idea has gained momentum in society doesn't mean it should now serve as the baseline for common judgment. Just because a certain idea has gained momentum in society doesn't mean it should now serve as the baseline for common judgment. In other words, if something starts off godly and then moves far away from it over time. We shouldn't be judging or discerning things based on the new mark because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? And He is the Word of God, right? And that is objective thinking, right? So we don't move because we have this, and this never changes. But you see, societal norms, by definition, can and do change. And what we just noted, that if there's a chasm that's big enough between us and them, it becomes issues of life and death even. People start threatening your well-being. I saw one guy get grabbed by the back of the neck because he was standing up for the word, for truth. He got grabbed by the back of the neck by a transgender dude who said he was now a woman. And this guy said, you're still a man because you still have male chromosomes. And he called him sir. And the guy threatened physical harm. Why? Why can't he just disagree? Because that's what societal norms come to. And that's what we're living in, my friends. 
And that's why they murdered Jesus. <laughs> because the ones who were living and abiding and in power in that realm of societal norm during Jesus' time were really upset because he was coming and flipping tables over and saying, you guys are on crack. He didn't use that language, but... Go to John 9, 1. In other words, we must be careful not to assume that massive acceptance equals goodness. We can't assume that massive acceptance equals goodness. And massive acceptance can be either on a broad scale like America, could be inside of a school, could be inside of a household, could be inside a circle of friends. Just because your friends think something's correct and you're saying the word doesn't, doesn't mean that they're correct. Just because everybody's saying the same thing doesn't mean it's good. John 9.1 As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So think about that. He's about ready to use. There's a reason why there's a whole chapter dedicated to this story, which I love. Because God's glorified. We might work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he, has said, or when he had said this, he spat in the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the, in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. Is that not really plainly stated? Is that not objectively stated? I did these things. This is what happened. Done. Shouldn't that be the end of the story? Oh, no. Oh, no. Not when those things go against societal norms. See, nothing. objective data and facts mean nothing to people like social justice warriors. They mean nothing. And that's what we're going to see. So this is an age-old story. We're not the only people that have to deal with these people, this kind of thinking. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, and the Pharisees were also were asking him again how he received. You notice he said again. So he's, he's keeping having to repeat his, these facts. How he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees are saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Seriously, guys? But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. So in the, in the presence of objective facts, 
In the presence of objective data, these subjective morons refused to accept the truth. Sound familiar? Until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Now you see what we would call bullying. You see, social bullying. Sound familiar yet? Try standing up for abortion rights. Excuse me, uh, pro-life. Try standing up against uh, transgenders, homosexuality, all those kinds of things, calling these things a sin. Try standing up and, 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 and go down to the mall and wear a sign that says, I am vehemently opposed to all these things and list all the so-called social justice warrior issues on your belly. You'd be lucky to make it out there not bruised. So now we see bullying. Okay? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. You see them saying, Oh, crud. We're getting bullied. What do we do? Well, verse 22 says, His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's like being excommunicated from your, from your society in that day and age. You would have been like a, a leper, a pariah. Do you understand? You would have been completely excommunicated from the, 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 the main social circle. Why? Because you believed in objective facts about the Lord? Because you were actually being objective? He's saying what happened. What do you want him to say? But we don't want to accept that because it upsets us social norms. And you see, we're, we've taken something good, we've perverted for years and years and years, and this is where we're at now. So we're to, you, need to, you need to orient to us now. And if you don't, we're going to cast you out. We're going to bully you. And if that still doesn't work, we're going to cast you out. And in the case of Christ, we're going to kill you. If you're the source of the problem, we're going to kill you. Okay, so what do we see about the strength of societal norms during Jesus' time on earth? What Jesus was teaching around them, or around himself, was essentially what's on the board. That just because a certain idea has gained momentum in society doesn't mean it should now serve as the baseline for common judgment. Societal norms affect everyone in here. Now, if you don't think that's true, we can have a little sit-down after, and I'll tell you my problems with societal norms and my weaknesses and my failures, and, I'll, and then we can talk about yours. And trust me, we'll be there all night if, we, if we're honest. Societal norms affect everyone in here, even our own behavior, unfortunately, which is what we see in this case also. Look at verse 23. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> i got to love this guy, right? He's just like, let's just stick to the facts. What are you guys doing? Why do you keep asking me the same things? This is what happened. And you can see that they're not interested. Just like anybody under this under today's societal norms, is actually not interested in the facts, in objective thinking. 
I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, not want, or do you, or you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Now that would have infuriated them, obviously. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. <laughs> I love this. This guy's awesome, isn't he? Now, here's the amazing thing, that you do not even know where he is from. In other words, you can't explain him, can you? That's what the blind man said. Here's the amazing thing. You can't explain him. You can't actually look me in the eye, now that I can see you, and have an objective conversation about this because you don't want to hear it. Every time I give you the objective facts, you refuse them. And then you go harass my parents and refuse their testimony. What do you want from me? I'm giving you the facts. What is it that you want? Well, I don't want the facts. So then just say it. But see, this is the problem, and we're faced with this today. People in our society do not want the truth. Amen? They don't want it. That's the point. That is the whole point. They don't want it. And when you show up with the truth, boy, are you reviled. You are one despised individual. So here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from. You can't even explain him. And yet he opened my eyes. Aaron, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Errant social norms cannot deal with godly truth. Let me say that again. Errant social or societal norms cannot deal with godly truth. <clears throat> so what we see here are knee-jerk reactions to it, a.k.a., otherwise known as emotionalism, irrational behavior, and subjectivity. Emotionalism, irrational behavior, and subjectivity. The crazy thing is, no, no pun intended, is that this kind of reactionary, unstable, often fluid type of thinking becomes, you ready? That kind of thinking, you know, almost like existentialism almost, where it's fluid, based on, you know, what I've been told in the past, get with the times, man, it's 2014, it's 2017, why are you still thinking like that? What do you mean, why am I still thinking like Because this hasn't changed, dummy. That's why I'm still thinking like that. What do you want me to do? So the crazy thing is, is that this kind of reactionary, unstable, often fluid type of thinking becomes the accepted norm. Not the rock. This thing. This wishy-washy emotionalism. Sound like... Sound like the feminine weakness? No offense, ladies. That's what it is. It's Tashuka. Tashuka is not interested in how it dominates you, just that it dominates you. It has no integrity. That's something to chew on. 
But nonetheless, this sort of thinking, this fluid thinking that we find in, you know, philosophy courses in colleges, um, that's the norm. In other words, the norm is to chase, chase something that's never stable. And if you're not willing to move and change, and they call that progressivism in politics or even liberalism, if you're not willing to, 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 to move with the crowd, with the masses, and reset your norm, your biblical norms, to whatever degree they move and you stay stationary, there's a problem. And that's what we see here. And when you say, but this is what's truth, they respond the same way they responded to the blind man. We don't want to hear that. And they'll bully you and harass you and sometimes threaten you. And there's all kinds of threats that seem to resonate with you, depending on your weaknesses. Well, we won't be friends anymore. Uh-oh. What do you mean? I'm going to lose my reputation? I'm going to lose everything? I can't be friends with you? Oh, God, I'm going to lose my circle of friends? Well, I'll just succumb them because I'm weak and pathetic. And I don't really care about Jesus Christ. I care about my reputation more than Jesus. Isn't that what the parents were afraid of? Getting kicked out of the synagogue? Don't be bullied. So this fluid type of thinking becomes the norm. In other words, people who are grounded in the actual truth are considered the wackos. You know, uh, ancient dinosaurs, you know, crusty thinking, uh, old school old-fashioned, get-with-the-time type guys? That's us. Somehow we've become the wackos because we refuse to bend towards societal norms. Everything's upside down and backwards, hence this evening's message title, When Subjectivity Becomes the Culturally Accepted Norm. Now, I need you to concentrate. Don't even read it yet. Just read the title. When Subjectivity, which is inherently impregnated with instability. Subjectivity means you base your judgment based on changing circumstances. That's what subjectivity means, as opposed to objectivity, which believes in something like the Bible, the rock, and it's stationary, and that's it, and it's nice and stable. When this moving emotional mess, basket case, becomes the culturally accepted norm, Societal norms can be so powerful that people under them can refuse to judge with integrity. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted godliness. So you ready for this? Instability becomes the accepted norm. That's what it means to be progressive. That's what someone says, that's what someone's, that's what someone's proposing you buy into when they say get with the times. What they're really saying is drop this, drop your convictions, and the only truth that this world has ever known, let this go. Untether yourself and be washed out to sea. That's what the world wants from you. 
They want you to let go of Jesus Christ, who is the rock. That's what they want. And then when they say, when the world says, we're going to move over here now, you just sort of float over there on your little, you know, your little life tube. You just kind of float over there. Yay. But there's, you know, there's drinks for everybody on Satan. Keep everybody intoxicated. Well, we'll move over here. Instability becomes the accepted norm. It becomes the in vogue, fashionable. My fear is that, you know, young kids now, I remember when I was teaching high school, I taught high school for a year. Some of you know that. Most of you know that. When I was there, there was actually a, one of the vice principals started, this was years ago, started a gay and lesbian alliance thing, and they owned a part of the, the um, hallway, and it was promoted, and, you know, kids would be, at, hey, Mr. Collins, what, what do you think about that? I think I might be bisexual. I might be there. I think I might think about this. In other words, it was almost like a seed planted. It was something being promoted. Do you follow? And I don't know where those kids are now. Who knows what happened? But that's how it works. That's how it works, you see. Objective thinking is no longer allowed because it upsets the societal norm, which has supplanted godliness. And therefore, instability becomes the accepted norm. And I'm out of time. I need you to think about that last statement as well as the title. Subjectivity becomes the culturally accepted norm. If you're not an emotional basket case, if you're not an unstable emotional basket, literally, you ready for this? Literally, the antithesis of how we started off. Act like men, be, stand firm, be strong. Firm in the faith, uh, be strong, stand firm in the faith, let everything you do be done in love, right? Close enough? That's the antithesis of what we have today. That's, that's standing firm. Subjectivity, whatever the, whatever's in vogue. If it's homosexuality, if it's killing babies, if it's cutting off male genitalia, if it's adding other genitalia to women, if it, whatever it is. Go with it. And if you, if you stand against that, based on this truth, be careful, beware. You will be reviled. But do not be a wimp. We haven't come this far as a congregation to start kowtowing to idiots, to people who are completely lost. So I need you to chew on this because we've got more to do, obviously, on Sunday Subjectivity becomes a culturally accepted norm. Just think about that. Subjectivity, something fluid, becomes the culturally accepted norm. Instability then becomes the accepted norm. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word here this evening. Thank you so much for giving us clarity. Thank you for showing us light and keeping our minds illuminated with truth so that we might navigate our way through this world, this awfully depraved world, Father, and maybe, just maybe, given your will, 
we might evangelize some and bring them the truth so that they might be grounded and they might build a house on a rock. So when the rains come, they don't, or they aren't washed away like those who build on the sand. We do ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.